0: All right, we are in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, the upside-down kingdom. That might sound a little weird, but as we go through it, hopefully it'll make more sense. Uh, Today we're beginning what is referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It starts in chapter 5, and it goes all the way through to chapter 7. Chapter 5 starts out by telling us that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Think about that for a second. What an amazing thing! Chapter seven ends with these words. Like after he got done preaching his sermon, he there was a good outcome, right? <laughs> surprise, surprise. They they liked Jesus' sermon. It says, and when he, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. I don't know if you've ever seen those movies where somebody's trying to find the answers to life, and so they'll climb some mountain to try to look for a you know a guru with a long beard that will tell them everything that they want to know. Instead of that, here we have the God of the universe coming to us, sitting down with us and teaching us. You can almost hear God's, the Father's voice, you know, the clouds parting like at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear what he has to say. And, and we get to And So this is an amazing section of scripture that we're privileged to have access to and to, and to learn this morning. So this morning we're going to be looking at what is referred to as the Beatitudes now most of you guys have heard the uh, of the beatitudes these are eight declarations made by Jesus people often think they're called the beatitudes because they describe the attitudes we're supposed to exemplify so the be attitudes be like this don't be like that that's not why they're called that that sounds that's clever sounds good but it comes the latin word actually for blessed are is where we get that phrase so so that's really all that it's talking about so Matthew chapter 5 I said chapter 3 that was a test if any of you turn to chapter 3 now you can turn over to chapter 5 and uh, then we'll, we'll actually, you're like, what Bible is he reading? The Beatitudes are in chapter five. Pastor Brent is just wrong this time. Okay. Verse one of chapter five says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you so it might be good to start out by answering the question what does it mean to be blessed we often hear people throw this word around Um, in the way that they describe their lives. If you've ever watched, I I know people don't watch award shows anymore, but I immediately thought of the the movies and the music award shows where these these people who didn't even necessarily believe in Jesus would talk about how blessed their lives were. And you would look at what's going on. They're like, they're up there on TV receiving an award. You'd kind of shake your head and go, yeah, their life is blessed. Because we often associate this word with happiness, with prosperity, and with good fortune. So we normally wouldn't say somebody's life was blessed if they were poor, meek, full of mourning, persecuted, reviled, and had all kinds of evil spoken against them. You wouldn't see that person and go, man, I wish my life was like theirs. Why can't my, you know, you wouldn't do that. That's not the way we would define a happy existence. If we were to write the Beatitudes, they would look much different. We would say something like, blessed are the wealthy, for they have nice cars and houses and and everything they need, and their lives are full of ease. We would say, blessed are the wise and capable, for they know how to get things done. They know how to navigate through life. Blessed are the beautiful and popular, because they are loved and accepted by everyone. Blessed are the powerful, for they control everything. They basically control their own destiny, even, and get whatever they want. And blessed are the healthy, for they never have pain. That's what our list would look like, right? I can get behind that. That makes sense to me. What Jesus is saying doesn't make sense at all. It's like he's taking this, this whole idea and just turning it upside down, turning it on its head. The economy of Jesus's kingdom is different from the world's kingdom. And it makes no sense to most people. One commentator said that what Jesus is teaching here is narrow gate theology. I think that's good. So he's he's more or less saying, you think think being rich will make you blessed? Nope. Being poor does. You think being powerful brings blessing? Wrong again. Being meek does. Well, how does that work? What kind of blessing is he talking about? Blessing here isn't talking about a life of ease and abundance and, and these kinds of things that we think of. It's talking about divine acceptance. You know what it's like to be in right standing with God, to know that that you're at peace with your maker and that you have his approval and his favor? That's what this is. That's what this blessing is talking about. If you are a recipient of God's grace and favor, you are blessed. And this is more than a feeling or an emotion. It doesn't have to do with circumstances. It's just a fact of the matter. It's a state of existence for those who are in Christ. Blessed. That's what you are. And this blessing includes the right standing that we enjoy right now, for sure. But it really has to do with the fact that we get to have this blessing for eternity in the kingdom of heaven. This is what describes us now from here on out once we are in Christ. This blessing won't go away. And this kind of blessing puts all those other blessings that we were talking about, the way we think of it, that puts those to shame. When you compare them, really, you think about it. all of those things we talked about, the things we would describe as blessed, they're fleeting. They can go away in a moment. You know, the money, the fame, the, the looks, all those things, they all disappear. It's kind of weird to watch. You know, I don't know how many of you invested in cryptocurrency. Looked pretty good there for a minute. Not so much now, just like that. You see these actresses and actors that were beautiful when they were young and and then now they strive to try to contain. You know, it's it's just weird how we do that. It all goes away. But the blessings that Jesus proclaims here are permanent and eternal. These are the good ones. By proclaiming these beatitudes, Jesus is telling us about a time when the tables will be turned and the roles will be reversed. So it's like the winners and the losers of this world are going to change places. I'm sorry if I just called you a loser, but for me, I I like this. This is good. Jared Wilson, who I really like, he refers to this as good news for those at the bottom. That's what the Beatitudes are. And I love the way he describes those at the bottom in real terms. This is what's being talked about here. And this might describe you. You might be able to relate to the way he puts these. The spiritually impoverished, the emotionally devastated, the psychologically weak, the culturally oppressed, the physically abused and the personally accused. That's who Jesus came for. That's who he's going to flip everything upside down for. These beatitudes are really good news for anyone who's experienced or felt this way in their life. Now, the way we read and understand these statements matters a lot. And so when you, you know, I don't know how you've read the beatitudes in the past, but the way you look at this list will change everything. So do you look at this list and see announcements or instructions? Because one is gospel and the other is law. Reading these as instructions or law would mean that you view these as a way to either get to heaven, to earn God's favor, to please God, or ways to be successful in life. And I think that's how a lot of people read the Beatitudes. So it's like, oh, do you want to go to heaven? Well, just become pure in heart. Become pure in heart and then you'll get to go to heaven. That's the way we read these a lot of times. Do you want to be blessed? Well, learn to be meek. And merciful and then god will give you the blessings that you're you're looking for he'll give you the success You're looking for that's how we try to read these we try to turn them into some kind of a formula But jesus is not giving us a formula for success here This is not a to-do list. This is not uh, Like an action, you know, these are your action items for the day go and do these things and then then you'll get what you're looking for What we need to look at is that, you know ask the question Is he giving us something for us to do or is he proclaiming what's already been done? There's a huge difference in these. So it's the idea of if you do this, you will get this. So, for instance, you know, if you're pure in heart, then you can get to go to heaven. Well, that doesn't sound like good news to me because there's a problem there. I don't know if you noticed what it is, but I'm not pure in heart. If that's my action list, my to do list, I'm in big trouble right now. But if he's saying because I have done this, you get this. That's an announcement. That is good news. And I'm glad, really glad that Jesus isn't giving us a list of things to do to, to make it to heaven because I, I, you look at the list that way and pretty quickly you realize this, is not, this isn't good for me at all. Um, if you want to get to heaven, you just need to be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You know, who's with me? Uh, you just need to, to be pure in heart. I already said that one. You need to be merciful to everybody, etc. That's not good news. That leaves me out. That means I'm not going to heaven. This list becomes the opposite of good news if we turn it into law. But if it's gospel, this is great news. And in in chapter 4, we know it's gospel because in chapter 4, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And now in the Beatitudes, he's saying, this is what kingdom people will look like because of my work of redemption in them. This is who I will make my people to be. This is the work of Christ in us. So these are announcements. It's what born-again people will be like Not all the time, unfortunately. You know, there's times we don't get this quite right. Obviously, we don't succeed in this. But more importantly, it's what we will be like in eternity. Sometimes a little bit now. But, you know, every once in a while, I love that we get to see little glimpses. Kind of like when there's a dark day with clouds and a sunbeam shines through. That's what it's like when you see a Christian filled with God's spirit be merciful when maybe they shouldn't be merciful at that moment. Or or they are meek and humble when maybe you would think that you'd see the opposite. When we get those little glimpses, we're we're getting a sneak peek into heaven. We're getting a a glimpse at the kingdom, right? His kingdom come here and now. But I want to make sure we understand that we are only this way because Jesus makes us this way. We can never produce these things apart from him. So if, if you read this list and you're thinking, hey, everybody, check out my meekness. It's like, huh? pretty cool, huh? And don't, you know, that you think that's impressive. You know, my humility is even, that's what we tend to do. And don't even get me started about my pure heart. I mean, this is really something we don't get a boast about any of this stuff. All glory goes to him. So with that in mind, we're going to go through these kind of one at a time. And the first beatitude that we come to is like the domino that the rest of them fall behind. If this one's not true, then the rest of them probably aren't going to be true and won't even make sense necessarily. So this one is kind of the step one in coming to faith. It's that first stepping stone. And I would say it's also the key to our continual reliance on Christ. And so it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. It's an interesting phrase. It has nothing to do with money. I want to make sure we get that clear. This isn't talking about how much you have in your bank account. Not your financial bank account, but it's talking about your spiritual bank account. It's talking about being spiritually bankrupt. Those who have nothing in their account. All right? This is essential. Those who are not poor in spirit have no need of Christ. Right? That's partly why this list, by the way, if there were instructions on how we could get all these things, what's the point of Jesus? Why would he even come at that point? We don't need him if we can do all these things ourselves and get this list. So how much do we need Jesus? Imagine all the religious leaders that were scattered around the mountain that day listening to Jesus. They had no reason to come to him. They were rich in spirit. They had earned God's blessing by their heritage, by their stellar works, and by their, you know, their impressive devotion to God. That's what they thought. In their minds, they were rich in spirit. They had no need for Jesus at all. This didn't make any sense to them. And it reminds me of the church in Revelation. You remember in Revelation chapter 3, you have this church who basically thinks that they are so rich that Jesus isn't even in the church anymore. And we talk about, you know, we we use this as an evangelistic verse, Romans or Revelation 3.20, where Jesus stands and knocks at the door. It's not talking about, I mean, you know, it's a sweet little evangelistic idea, but in the context of what we're reading, it's the picture of Jesus standing outside of our church building going, you guys, you have any need for me in there? Anything you, you want to rely on me for? You guys, you got it covered? Okay, well, if you change your mind, You know, open the door and I'll be happy to come in and take part in what you're doing. That's the picture. And I want you to listen to the indictment that he brings against this church. What he says about them, his rebuke for them is gnarly. (laughs) Sorry, I I know. It just is. It's a good word. Let's redeem the word gnarly. Revelation 3 verse 17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They had no idea what poor condition they were in spiritually. And he spells it out for them. You guys aren't rich in spirit at all. You're poor. And I would just ask you, what is your level of need when it comes to God? Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself rich in spirit, but certainly not poor. Right? I mean, the idea that we need a little help, I think that's what describes most people. We're sort of middle class in spirit, if you could call it that. I think that describes most people. They aren't desperate, but they kind of like to keep God on speed dial just in case something comes up that they need him, you know, keep him close in, you know, in case of emergency. Something that I can't handle comes up, sure, I'll call on God, but I don't, I don't need him every day in my life just when I, you know, just in case of emergency. That's not what's being talked about here. A person who is poor in spirit is like that desperate beggar. Who's just hoping that a couple of crumbs fall from the king's table and gets to them? And that's who I am. I got nothing. I just got nothing. And if I can get a couple of crumbs coming my way, that's going to make all the difference in the world. I love the way the hymn writer puts it Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I'm naked, so I come to thee for dress. I'm helpless, so I look to thee for grace. I'm foul. So to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's poor in spirit. <laughs> okay? For those who understand their emptiness before God, and they look to them as their only remedy, he says to them, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's step one. If you're not poor in spirit, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. That's step one. And then when you get there, by the way, you don't just get the crumbs. You get him. You get him for eternity. Whew. Okay. Okay. The next pronouncement naturally follows a person who is poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, we know that everybody mourns. Everybody that lives in this world has has things that happen in their life that causes them to, to mourn. Everybody hurts sometimes. That's a normal part of life. But this is talking about something else, because we know that not everybody that mourns receives these blessings that he's talking about. So what is he talking about here? What are these people filled with grief over? And I would say it's their sin. Do you mourn over your sin? I mourn over it a lot. And when you think about your own personal sin, that's, that's one reason to mourn over sin. What I've done, how short I've fallen, how I've grieved God. But more than that, even just the sin that exists around us, you know, the sin that's in the world, all of the, the stuff that sin broke. I mean, you think about how Jesus made this world perfect in his creation. God, the Father, the Spirit, Jesus, they made it perfect. It was good, very good. And then we broke it. And what entered into the world after that point? Death, sickness, the lack of righteousness, if you will, sin, corruption, greed, injustice, lies. You know, the ugly way people treat each other that we see on the daily. And I hate it. This is the result of sin. I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus and, and Lazarus, who, his friend who died. I know you remember it because it's, you know, you guys, of course you remember it. How would you forget? He raised the guy from the dead. You remember that? Um, but you remember when Jesus came? It, it obviously contains one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You guys can probably guess which one it is, right? Jesus wept. Makes me feel more Christ-like when I do this. But in the story, it talks about how when Jesus walked up to the tomb, right before he told Lazarus to rise and get out, it describes this groaning in Jesus' spirit, almost like he was angry. And and I've always, you know, you wonder about that. And I think this is exactly what it's talking about. You see, Jesus' friend is dead. Why? Because sin entered the world. And you see this, Jesus is angry about what's happened to his good creation. None of this had to be this way. We broke this world and you see him mourning over sin because of the death of his friend. We should have that same attitude towards sin, our own and sin that's in the world. And there's a very real sense. I don't mean to be depressing, but for Christians, there's a very real sense because we're caught in this world, we're caught in this broken place, that mourning is going to be just a normal part of our existence, (laughs) mourning over sin, because until this changes, how can we not mourn? How can we not be sad every day about the things we see around us? How can we be broken over people that reject God and reject his gospel all around us? There was a pastor that one time just said it was Paul David Tripp, who I, I like, but I heard him say one time that I've kind of just accepted the fact that I'm going to be sad most of the time as a pastor. And I thought, well, that's, that's depressing to hear. But, but it, you know what? I know what's coming. So I mourn now, but listen to what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I love that word. I'm not like a snuggly guy, but when you just picture like a big warm comforter on a cold night, that feeling that you get of, you know, and I love that we are looking forward to comfort, but God hasn't left us without it now. He left us his Holy Spirit who is called the the comforter. How cool is that? I mean, it's, he's actually referred to as the comforter. So I love that that we are not alone in this. We're surrounded by the family of God. We are surrounded by the promises of God, by the word of God, and he's given us his Holy Spirit individually and collectively as the church. And I I love that, that sometimes we don't see God or feel God's presence the way we want to, but it's tangibly represented within the body of Christ, within the family. And this is why the church is so important, why we need each other, so that when one one of us weeps, we weep together. When one of us laughs, we laugh together. We're in this together. And I take great comfort in that, in, in the fact that I have all of you in my life, and we're also greatly comforted by the fact that Jesus is coming back, and that when He does, all the stuff that we mourn over now is gone. There will be nothing to mourn over in His kingdom, and that's that's an amazing thought. Next, we have blessed are the meek. This one always makes me think of a, a particular British comedy group. You know, oh, the meek, good for them. You know, it's like it just sounds funny to me. You know, it's like it's about time they got something. Um, when we think of meek, it's kind of a misunderstood word. I think we either think of it as that you're weak like a doormat for everybody to walk on or that you just have all this power, but that you you wield it kind of like Jesus did. You know, he had the power to do whatever he wanted to, but he he remained meek and he didn't call down the angels from heaven and wipe everybody out. I don't know that either of those, I I know I don't have that kind of power, which is good. But I think it's helpful to sometimes think about what the opposite of a word is when you're trying to understand it. So what would be the opposite of meek? It would be to be self-assertive. So this is the idea of pushing your way to the front looking out for number one, get yours. Right. And this is more now than any other time I can think of something that it's like everywhere. We're living in a me first kind of society. It's almost considered virtuous to be this way. The more you're this way, the more you're kind of applauded and we all buy into it. You know, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I hate those people. (laughs) You know, the people on that side of the aisle. No, it's on both sides of the aisle. And I am even talking about the political aisle, quite frankly we see this idea of my rights. You can't tell me what to do with my body. That's an argument on both sides right now, right? Don't tread on me. You can't tell me this is something that is so prevalent everywhere we look right now. And it's considered the only pathway to self-actualization. Do you want to be happy and fulfilled in life? You know what? You better get what's yours then. This is the only way to do it. But what about Jesus? Let's think about him for a minute. What would he say about this? What did he say about this? And more importantly, what did he model for us to follow? The greatest among you shall be the servant and the last. Yeah, the first will be the last. That's Jesus's economy. And then what did he do to prove it? He washed feet, beloved. <laughs> That's disgusting. He washed people's feet. Our savior, the creator of all, got down and scrubbed the feet of his followers. How about this one? The one who finds his life will lose it. And the one who loses his life for my sake we'll find it. And then he went to the cross. This is the way he tells us to live as his followers. It's the upside down and backwards world of his kingdom. It's different from everything else we see. Are you willing to put yourself second? You know, it's easy for me to say that, (laughs) but then in practice, I like being first. I like being all about me. I like getting my way. Are you willing to put yourself second? Jesus certainly was. The people putting themselves first might get all that this world has to offer, but we get all that the next one has to offer. And it's way better. It's forever as well. So in in Luke's account of the Beatitudes, he gives the blessings, but at the end he actually gives the, the opposite as well. And so listen to what he says. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. That's the difference. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And then he says this blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is one of those that just gives me pause right away. I I hear that and I'm like, "I, I would like to tell you that this describes me to a T, but as I reflect on my daily life, I don't think I hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as I should. And I don't do, don't get me wrong. I hunger and thirst for it in your life. I really want to see that. And I want to see it in the world around me. That part I have figured out. Um, You know, it would be so cool to see righteous dominate everything and everyone, including me. Don't we long for that? Do we hunger and thirst for that? You bet we do. And a day is coming. Well, that will actually be exactly what happens. You know, I can think back to a time in my life before I knew Christ where I didn't care a thing about righteousness at all. And now I am daily grieved by my lack of it and the lack of it around me. I hunger and thirst for it in that sense. I hate my sin and my failure, and I can't wait for the day when my practical holiness and my positional holiness meet up in his kingdom, and it's fully realized that I am made perfect and complete and righteous and, and holy. But until that day, it's a struggle. You know, I can't wait till I'm, I'm no longer wretched in that sense. But on the daily basis, we struggle with this. Part of the reason that we struggle with it so much is because we keep believing the, the world's lie that there's something here that's going to satisfy our hunger and thirst. And we're dumb enough to believe it. I'm sorry, but I, I'm speaking to me here. It's like I'm a dog chasing my tail sometimes where it's like, this, this time I'm going to get it. It's like, no, it's not going to work this time either. Why do you keep thinking it's going to work? Well, no, this time it might. Maybe I just wasn't searching for the right thing. And this time it'll, it'll work and I'll find some satisfaction. The problem is it never works. Not long anyway. I mean, it might maybe for a second you feel like, oh, that was, and then it just like, turns bitter in your mouth quickly. But we keep trying to find a way to do this with the wrong things. God is the only one who can fix the hole in our soul. He's the only one that can give us living water that will finally quench us. And one day we will fully get that, you know, in his kingdom. We'll get it. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's going to come a day where we are fully satisfied. I can't wait for it. Next, he says, blessed are the merciful. Mercy is a beautiful thing. It's one of those things everybody wants for themselves. But, you know, we're not as quick to give it to others. I don't know if you've ever watched somebody speeding down the road, weaving in and out of traffic, just like a jerk driving down the road. And you're just hoping there's going to be a cop around the corner that just justice. I want to see justice right now until that day when you're the one driving down the road and you look down and, you know, you're just singing songs and, you know, having a good old time. And then I'm doing 70 on the parkway and a cop's there. What do you want then? Justice? (laughs) Heck no. I want mercy. Right. That's how we are. We're wired in that weird way. I don't really sing in my car. I was just kidding. A person who recognizes that they're poor in spirit and that they're bankrupt with nothing to offer God and that truly mourns over the condition of of their sin and is humbled by it. When that person receives mercy, what should it create in them? Mercy for others. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way God has designed this for his kingdom people. Knowing that God was willing to save a wretch like me should create in me a desire to see others find that same mercy. That's the way it's supposed to work. I remember somebody once said Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's it. So we should be the most merciful people on the planet. If God was willing to send Jesus to the cross to forgive me, how could I withhold it from somebody else? Doesn't make sense, does it? I love this quote by Danny Aiken. He says, how much mercy you show is almost certainly the result of how much mercy you know. So blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And then he says, blessed is the pure at heart. Or pure in heart. And again, it's like, really? Psalm 24, verse 3 is where this comes from. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it's like, oh, is that all? Okay, I'll start heading up the hill then, I guess. Well, then there's another verse that unfortunately exists in the Bible that I relate to a whole lot more. And it's in Jeremiah seventeen nine, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? So in the immortal words of Scooby-Doo, Ruh-roh, th- this, is, this is bad. If what it takes to climb the holy hill of God is clean hands and a pure heart, and my heart is desperately sick, what am I going to do? I need a heart transplant. That's the only answer. I need a new heart. If only there was one who could give us a new heart. But there is. Amen? Jesus had a pure heart, and he went to the cross so that we could also have a pure heart. He can provide this for us by what we call the great exchange, right? I give him my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And guess what? Now I can climb that holy hill. Now I can stand in the presence of God and not explode. Like this is the good stand in the presence of God. That's good news. And then once we get this new heart, we can walk in newness of life. We can have hearts that desire God, that desire obedience, that desire purity, And because of this, because Jesus has made us holy with his pure heart, we get to see God. That's what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Without that, we don't have a chance. But because of his work for us, we can. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace seems like almost an impossible thing to strive for, and especially in our current climate. I've never seen a time when things have been so divided in our country and even in our churches. There's a huge division. It almost seems like... People are just walking around filled with anger and angst and hate. You can almost just feel it seething out of the surface all the time, this turmoil that's going on. And yet he's made us peacemakers. That's who we are as Christians, peacemakers. Now, I don't believe that peace is achievable apart from the power of God. And I also don't believe that he's saying you need to go out and, you know, it's your job to go create world peace. That's probably above our pay grade. We can't do that. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? It definitely applies to our relationships within the church. And I would say this is probably more important than any other time I can remember, that we find a way to live in harmony with one another and be united as people of God. And it's not happening very often, it seems like, these days. Ephesians tells us that we're to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and Romans tells us to pursue peace. And if you've ever been in the church for any length of time or, or, um, you know, you know how necessary this is one, but you also know how difficult it is because the church is full of sinners. That's who makes up the, you know, that's who's inside of this place. It's hard for us to find ways to be at peace with each other when, when we wrong each other, hurt each other. And that's why this is so important. Uh, Most of us, I would say, probably don't like confrontation. Some people do. There's a couple people like, I love it. What are you talking about? A lot of people don't. So their way of dealing with conflict is bury their head in the sand and hope it goes away. Um, That's not how it works. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to be honest about the conflict that exists. And you also have to be willing to seek a resolution to that conflict in a loving and humble way. That's the way it works. You, You can't just ignore it. And it's definitely easier just to move on down the road and find another church. That's, what lot, that's how a lot of people deal with this kind of thing. It's like, well, like, you know, there's conflict here, so I'm going to move on down the road to this church. Guess what's going to be waiting for you there? <laughs> More conflict, if for no other reason than that you showed up. I mean, that's, you, bring that, you bring that stuff with you, don't you? That's the way it works. I remember thinking that, you know, I'm going to go find the perfect church someday. And then it's like, well, but what happens when you get there, Brent? It's like, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's going to mess it all up. I very much appreciate it when we work to figure these things out, when we work towards reconciliation. Um, it's what kingdom people are supposed to do. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen as often as it should. It does take work. But, I, you know, I like somebody one time said, hey, we're going to be together for eternity. We might as well start getting along now, right? Might as well get used to it. And think about the witness to a watching world when they see Christians who have differences and aren't alike in a lot of ways, but when they see us living in true harmony, loving each other, uh, deferring to one each other, to each other. It's a beautiful thing, it's something we don't see often enough. The opposite of a peacemaker is somebody who creates division, stirs up strife by going around and getting others riled up along with them. That matters to Jesus and his church. Be a peacemaker. If you're the kind of person that's disgruntled and unhappy and always dissatisfied and you're kind of going around and getting other people wound up with you, that's something you're going to have to stand before God someday and answer for. He doesn't, he doesn't like that. This is his bride, his beautiful, precious bride that he loves. And we're called to be peaceful and to seek peace. Sometimes peace isn't achievable. You know, you do everything you can, and you get to that point where, you know, there are times when we have to agree to disagree on certain things. Hopefully it's not secondary issues. Hopefully it's, you know, the stuff like, you know, Jesus isn't God. If somebody were to say that to me, I would probably say, you know what? I can't beat a church that teaches that. That's a deal breaker. But when we start to get nitpicky over little things that don't matter at all that much in the great scheme of eternity, we need to be really careful about that. I wish, you know, it's no mystery that we've shrunk uh, over the last couple of years in this location, the other location people have left. I wish we would have had the opportunity to sit down and work through things. Um, Sometimes we did, but most often we didn't. To come to a peaceful resolution, most of these things can be worked out if you just sit down and talk to each other. But that usually doesn't happen. So being a peacemaker is important. It applies to the relationships within the church, but more importantly, it applies to those relationships outside of the church where we who are the people who know the way to peace with God, take that to other people who don't know it yet. That's really kind of the big idea. We get to become like, we get to broker peace with those who are still at enmity with God. So blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Okay, so these are the first seven. It's interesting to just kind of think about the characteristics that were just described here. Um, These are pretty cool things. You would think that a person that exhibits these first seven that the world would applaud, like they would put you up on their shoulders, and you know, for he's a jolly good, you, you want something like this to happen right now. Are you guys going to throw me a parade or something? Because these are pretty good. But then you look at what Jesus says in the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It's like, what? we just kind of shifted real fast. Everything was going really good till this last one. Why would they want to do that? Well, when people see us living according to what God desires, it shines an unwanted light on the fact that they are not living that way. Case in point, Jesus. Jesus exemplified all of these beatitudes, a hundred percent. And what did they do to Jesus? They nailed him to a cross. Jesus doesn't ask us to do things that he wasn't willing to do, or to be, way, you know, a way that he wasn't willing to be. And, and when we look at the beatitudes, what we really see, we see Jesus in these, in every one of them. And that's again why these are announcements and not instructions. We're, this is what Jesus is making us. He's, he's, he's you know, making us into his image. So the first one, Jesus was poor in spirit, not because of his sin, but because of the fact that he emptied himself. Second Corinthians eight says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. We know that Jesus mourned. We already talked about Lazarus and we know that he wept over Jerusalem. We know that he was meek. He was gentle and lowly in heart. He, um, you know, you read Philippians two and you see this attitude that Jesus had Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. That's Jesus's meekness. We know that he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Uh, He always wanted to, to please the father and do the will of his father. And he wanted to see other people repent from their sin. And he even went to the cross to provide righteousness for us. He was merciful. Think about how he treated the, the most lowly in society, who he would associate with when nobody else would. He was pure in heart and he loves like no other. He was a peacemaker. He's even called the Prince of Peace. And he went to the cross to secure our peace. He was all of those wonderful things and yet they hated him for it. And so he was persecuted for righteousness sake. This is our king and we are kingdom people. So the plain expectation is the, the more like Jesus we are, what can we expect? We we can expect to be treated like him, persecuted. I don't like that idea. I'll be honest and just say I didn't, you know, persecution is one of my least favorite things to, to have happen to me. And yet, and yet as kingdom people, when that happens to us and people see the love of Christ coming out of us and, and all of these things, it matters. And that's kind of the big idea behind the The Beatitudes, it's like Jesus is pulling back the curtain to show everyone what his kingdom will look like, a little glimpse into the kingdom and what the citizens of heaven will look like as well. Good news for people at the bottom and bad news for people at the top. He's letting people know that there's a new king in town and that there's going to be some restructuring going on. Right? It's like when a company gets bought out and somebody comes in, it's like all the people at the top are scared. That's kind of what's happening. Not everybody's going to be happy about that. People are going to hate it and they're going to take it out on us. He goes on to explain this further in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So they're going to do that because of me, he said. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. Now, notice at this point, in all the Beatitudes, Jesus has been saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. But when it comes to the persecution of a child of God that he loves, he changes it from the group to the individual. and He says blessed are you. I'd like to think that that's because what we go through personally matters so much to him and that he's, he's aware of it. He sees it. When you go through something difficult and hard, it matters to him. He sees it. He's paying attention to all of it. So even though we may suffer for being the way Jesus wants us to be, we continue to be meek. We continue to be humble, merciful, peaceful, righteous, because we're reflecting the kingdom to the world around us. And this is a privilege. And it matters because this, this really has eternal repercussions. And that's why he can say in verse 12, as he ends this section, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And then he adds this for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you just to let us know that we're not in this alone. Okay, and that matters, doesn't it? I even think about the apostles. Remember in Acts chapter five, they took a beating for their association with Jesus, for teaching others about Jesus. And do you remember their attitude when they left? Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. It's like just in comparison, knowing what Jesus suffered for us infinitely more than we would ever suffer. But just the fact that they got to do it a little, they were high-fiving each other and excited that they got to, you know, take a beating for Jesus, which again doesn't sound good to me, but we're in good company when it comes to those who align with Jesus. We don't know what this next week or this next month or this next year holds for us as Christians. It could get tough for us here. I think it's already happening, quite frankly. I think we're just kind of ignoring it a little bit. I like to bury my head in the sand like, you know, just as much as the next person. But it's already beginning to happen. The tide is changing. But we do know this. We do know what awaits us. Rejoice and be glad, Christian, for great is your reward in heaven. It's waiting for you. It is secure. And let these proclamations, you know, we read the first part of them because again, we try to do to-do lists, but we kind of forget about the second half of them. Listen to the second half of these proclamations that Jesus made and let them give you hope. This is what he has secured for you through his work on the cross. If you will place your faith in his death, burial and resurrection, these are yours. Okay, brace yourselves. This is good stuff. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted you will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God and you will be called sons and daughters of God. Is that good news? Amen. It is father. Thank you so much for these proclamations that, that are true because Jesus went to the cross, bore our sin, died, was buried and rose again. We pray that we would be kingdom people, that we would be Uh, happily aligned with you as our King and that we would take this message of who you are and what you've done and what awaits us to those around us who need to hear it desperately. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen.